spectacle. Well, good morning, family. This morning, it's about spectacle. Now, I I know sometimes spectacle can catch you off guard. Spectacle can maybe even take your breath away. We've had a lot already happen this morning. So if you would with me, we're going to breathe in. Let's take a moment. Breathe in and breathe out. Because this morning, we hit the book of Ezekiel. Pretty sure I drew the short straw on picking books of the Bible to preach on this morning. What better way to start VBS Sunday than Ezekiel? Um, actually, I'm, I'm very excited to preach on Ezekiel this morning as we go through the Bible in a year, as we look at the legends of, of the Old Testament. And uh, because Ezekiel, well, he, he's about spectacle. Um, there are crazy things that happen in the book of Ezekiel. In fact, in Jesus' day, you had to be 30 years of age to even be allowed to read the book of Ezekiel because there were so many crazy things in there. I I mean, God uses illustration where there's like graphic prostitution or burning of human feces or excessive nudity or bodily fluids. And I know what you're thinking. These are all the key elements to a great Tom sermon. And and (laughs) you're, you're right. Um, and, and an even better way to kick off VBS Sunday. Um, but but they're, they're in there for a reason. And uh, by the way, if you've not made use of our excellent children's programming, this may be where you want to consider doing that uh, as, as we go through this book this morning. But, um, but it's, it's spectacle for, for a reason. And, and I think sometimes... Sometimes there's church people, not, not you church people, but, but sometimes there's church people who, who think of that word spectacle and, and all of a sudden it, we, we associate it with things like production or, or words like entertainment and somehow those become kind of dirty words in, in Christianity or, or in church. And, and I want to share with you that God, well one, he's a God of production, he, he is. I mean, if you don't believe me, you can just open up to chapter 1 of your Bible and, and see that, that everything was dark, and then God decides to speak, and he says, let there be light. Right. It's the first greatest light show ever, and then God's like wheeling in props like water and land and animals, and, and it's the first greatest production ever. And, and you can go to the end of the Bible, and Jesus shows up, and, and there's all kinds of color and lights and smokes, and the music's really loud, and it shakes the floor, and I mean, it's... Production. And, and sometimes we, we, we'll, we'll, we'll get hung up. We'll say, well, that church service is a little too much production or, or a little bit too much about entertainment. But God's a God of entertainment. The, the word to, to entertain means to hold one's attention. And God will do whatever it takes to grab our attention and hold our attention. I don't think God ever intended for church to be boring. I don't think that was ever part of his plan. I don't think he ever expected VBS to be anywhere close to boring. I think God intended the church to be the most exciting place on the planet. Because he'll do whatever it takes to grab our attention. I mean, Jesus did this. If you look at the ministry of Jesus, Jesus would always do one of two things. He would either go to a place where everybody was already gathered and he'd create a scene. And he'd draw all the attention to himself and then deliver this wonderful message. Or he would do a miracle. He would create spectacle. And it would draw people to him and draw the attention to himself. And he would begin to deliver a great message. Because the best counterpart to spectacle is a great message. 
God wants to grab our attention and hold our attention because he has a message that he wants to speak that, that our heart needs to hear. I mean, if you think about it, the best movies, the best Broadway shows, the, the best sermons or, or church services that we hear are the ones that grab our attention, hold our attention, and then deliver a message that our heart needs to hear. And that's the book of Ezekiel. God is doing crazy things to get his people, to get us, to get our attention. Because there's something God wants us to see. And he's drawing the attention to himself because God wants us to see some important things about God. Because God knows if we can see and learn and see a little bit of God, if we can see bits of his heart, then it will begin to change our hearts. It's a 587 B.C., when King Nebuchadnezzar, he comes in and he, he demolishes uh, Jerusalem, the capital city of the kingdom of Judah, and, and he, he destroys the temple of the Lord that has, that has stood for 400 years. And he takes all but the poorest people out of their home country, out of their home city, and he takes them back to his city of Babylon. And Ezekiel is at age about 25 when he is taken from his land and he is put into exile into a foreign land. And it's about five years later that he receives a vision from God. In fact, he'll be receiving visions from God for the next 22 years, and he begins to prophesy. And so I want to start with the very first vision that Ezekiel sees, and that's in Ezekiel chapter 1, verse 1. It says this, In the thirteenth year and the fourth month, on the fifth day, while I was among the exiles by the Kabar River, the heavens were opened, and I saw visions of God. And he sees, sees a wild vision. He sees these four majestic creatures that, that are amazing beasts. And, and, and between them and around them is, is this kind of circle. And, and then there's a circle within the circle. And then upon the circle, there, there's this giant throne. And, and God shows up. And, and scholars for years have debated, well, well, what's the meaning of the circle within the circle that maybe... Maybe it represents God's perfection, or, or, or maybe it represents his infiniteness, or, or maybe it represents his mobility, how he can be all places at all times. Uh, some even say maybe it's a spaceship, and that's fun, but, but uh, I, I just think God appreciates a sweet ride. I mean, you know, he, here he shows up on his throne. And uh, let's, let's read about it a little more, starting verse 26. says, High above the throne was a figure like that of a man. I saw that from what appeared to be his waist up, he looked like glowing metal, as if full of fire. And that from there down, he looked like fire, and brilliant light surrounded him, like the appearance of a rainbow in the clouds on a rainy day. So was the radiance around him. This was the appearance of the likeness of the glory of the Lord. And when I saw it, I fell face down. You see, I think the first thing that God wants Ezekiel wants his people, wants us to see, is God's power. We are created in the image of God, but God is still much more than us. He is all-powerful. In fact, the Hebrew word, and even trying to describe him in the text, we don't even know what to make of it because it's such a rare word. It's, it's like the God has this glow that comes from without him or from within him and, and around him and surrounds him, and it's kind of fiery, but it's kind of all the colors of the spectrum, and it's kind of just glowing. We don't even know how to describe it because it's so powerful that, that, that radiates out, this power that radiates out from God. And here God shows up. On the throne, 
on his throne. Here, Ezekiel is in a foreign land. He's in Babylon, and God wants Ezekiel to see his power. Guess what, Ezekiel? I'm still as much on my throne reigning in Babylon as I was back in Jerusalem. And God wants us to see that he is still on the throne, all-powerful. And so when, when the news brings us the latest shooting or bombing, God says, I'm still on the throne. When the presidential candidacy is driving us crazy, God says, I'm still on the throne. When you hop onto Facebook and, and you start seeing everybody yelling out their opinions, none of which re- resembles yours, and you just got on there to wish somebody a happy birthday, God <laughs> is still on the throne. God wants us to see his power. You know, I, I find this one interesting, too, that sometimes there's church people, not you church people, but, <laughs> but uh, and we find ourselves asking this question of, are we reverent enough? And there's this idea of reverence, and, and I believe it's in the Bible, I believe it's important, but, but there's something I've noticed as I look through Scripture That whenever God shows up in a place in his power, people just get reverent. (laughs) Prophets fall face down. People tremble. And I wonder if reverence is less of a rule and more of a reaction. And maybe we could dial down the frequency of asking, are we reverent enough? And dial up the frequency of asking, is the power of the Lord in this place? I think God wants us to see his power. Over 70 times in the book of Ezekiel, there's this phrase that shows up. And it's from God. And he says, then they will know that I am the Lord. God wants us to see his power. And he starts off the book of Ezekiel by displaying it. And and then he, he starts, as we move through the visions, as we move through the book of Ezekiel, God begins to show us almost a softer side of God's heart. We're going to go to Ezekiel chapter 16. Now, let me forewarn you. I have never heard a sermon preached out of Ezekiel 16. And when you go back and read it, because I know you will, um, you will see why there is no sermon ever preached out of Ezekiel 16. But that's not going to stop me this morning. So we're going to go Ezekiel chapter 16, starting in verse 4. It says, and this is God describing his love for his people. He says this, On the day you were born... Your cord was not cut, nor were you washed with water to make you clean, nor were you rubbed with salt or wrapped with cloths. No one looked on you with pity or had compassion enough to do any of these things for you. Rather, you were thrown out into the open field, for on the day you were born, you were despised. Now, in ancient Near Eastern customs, when a baby was born, I mean, you cut the umbilical cord, you, you wash them with clean water, you rub them with salts for antiseptic purposes, and you clothe them because they were your child, your baby. But God's describing an unloved and uncovered and uncared for child. But God says this in verse 6. He says, But then I passed by, and I saw you kicking about in your blood. And as you lay there in your blood, I said to you, Live. I made you grow like a plant of the field. You grew and you developed. And God begins to paint this picture of saying, you were abandoned, but I adopted you, and as we'll see soon, as my daughter. And then he takes it a step further in verse 8. He says, later I passed by, and when I looked at you and saw that you were old enough for love, I spread the corner of my garment over you and covered your naked body. I gave you my solemn oath and entered into a covenant with you, declares the sovereign Lord. And you became mine. 
In the ancient Near East, when you wanted to take a bride, you gave her some clothing. But God takes it even a step further. Look at verse 13. It says, So you were adorned with gold and silver. Your clothes were of fine linen and costly fabric and embroidered cloth. Your food was honey, olive oil, and the finest flour. You became very beautiful, and you rose to be a queen. And your fame spread among the nations on account of your beauty, because the splendor I had given you made your beauty perfect, declares the sovereign Lord. You see, for a moment, God lets us peek into his heart. He lets us see how much he loves his people, how much he loves to lavish blessings upon his people. But then there's verse 15. But you trusted in your beauty and used your fame to become a prostitute. You lavished your favors on anyone who passed by and your beauty became his. God says, I gave you all these gifts. I gave you all these talents. I made you live, and you took that all, and you gave it away. You spent it on your lust. You spent it on the worship of other things, things other than me. And if that weren't enough, he says this in verse 20. He says, and you took your sons and daughters whom you bore to me, And sacrificed them as food to idols. Was your prostitution not enough that you slaughtered my children and sacrificed them to idols? We know that the Israelites literally killed their children to sacrifice them to idols. They literally destroyed their families. And God says, not only did you hurt yourself, you hurt your families. And it broke my heart. And if that were not enough... God says in verse 33, he says, All prostitutes receive gifts, but you give gifts to all your lovers. You bribe them to come to you from everywhere for your illicit favors. Why does God go there? Why why does he choose the imagery of an adopted daughter? Why, Why does he choose the imagery of a bride who is then adulteress? I have two boys and a little girl. The older two boys, as they born live life, I've come to realization that they have a, a capacity, if they so choose in life, to, to disappoint me. That my boys, yeah, they've taken me up on that too. Um, but they do. They have the capacity to disappoint me. They have the capacity to hurt me deeply. They even have the capacity to shame me in my name. But my daughter... I'm terrified of her (laughs) because it's my daughter who has the capacity to break my heart in two. You see, I think when we look at scriptures, the angels can disappoint God, but nobody quite has the capacity to break God's heart quite like us. And I think for a moment, God wants us to look at it as if it were ourselves. And to imagine, what if it was our daughter? What if it was our spouse? And some of you in this room have even lived through that at some level, and you know the pain involved. I think for a moment, God wants us to see God's pain. He wants us to see his pain. Because it's those we love the most that have the capacity 
to hurt us the most. And God is in pain. And you could say, well, what did they do? What did these people do to hurt God so much? You know, to, not, to stop loving God or stop worshiping God, the opposite of loving and worshiping God, it's not Satanism. It's idolatry. They did what every single one of us have done in this room. They, they took, maybe it was a good thing. The problem is they made it a God thing. And they chased after it so much that they drew themselves away from God. They put other things more important than God in their lives. They put other things more important than, than their groom. They put other things more important than the blessings of what God had given. I'll be honest, the demons don't care what you worship or who you worship, just as long as it's not God. I think it's interesting when God gives his people the Ten Commandments, there's one commandment he repeats. Do not make other gods for yourselves. Because God knows we're so prone to wander. But that's not how the chapter ends. In verse 60, this is what God says with his broken heart. He says, Yet I will remember the covenant I made with you in the days of your youth. I will establish an everlasting covenant with you. And when you skip to 33, he says, Then I will make atonement for you. In other words, God is not making decisions based off of what we've done. God makes his decisions based off who he is. God says, I'm not going to react so much to what you've done. I'm going to honor my end of the agreement. I'm going to enter my end. I'm going to make it right for you. You know, sometimes I have people, they'll come to me and they'll go, Tom, how do I find this middle ground with this person I want to forgive? Or, or, or how, how can I meet them halfway, you know, in order to have peace with them? And, and here's the, the model God shows for us. It will always require a lopsided relationship when it comes to forgiveness, grace, Love, that God decides to love us, not because of who we are and what we do, but because of who he has decided to be. God wants us to see his pain so that we can truly see his passion for us. God says this in Ezekiel chapter 33 through 11. He says, Say to them, as surely as I live, declares the sovereign Lord, I take no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but rather that they would turn from their ways and live. Turn, turn from your evil ways. Why will you die? You see, God cries out to us. Yes, we've, we chase farther and farther away from him, which just makes him pursue us all the more, yelling, turn, turn, turn back to me. And God knows that, that this, this is something we need, and, but yet it seems so difficult. You see, Jesus talks about this idea in Matthew chapter 7. He talks about how there's these two paths in life and how there's kind of this, this narrow path that, that leads to the presence of God, that, that leads to heaven, and, and then that there's kind of this, this broad path and that most people go down and, and it leads to destruction. It leads to the gates of hell. And I think a lot of times we look at it kind Kind of like this, we think, okay, I have a choice in my life. I'm at the fork in the road. I, I can go where not many people go and chase after God, or I can go to where everybody else goes and chase after the, these idols, the lust, the greed, the everything, the money, whatever. I can chase after these things with everybody else. But as my grandfather taught me, I don't think it's two separate roads. I think what Jesus paints is a picture that looks something more like this. 
that the narrow road exists within the broad road. That God says, I need you to turn against the flow of the rest of the world. I need you to turn against the grain of what everybody else is doing. I need you to turn back to me and it will look different than where everybody else is doing and where everybody else is going. God says, turn back to me. Because God knows what we all need. It's what he's been crying out since the existence of time. God says, I want a relationship with you. I have a passion that's like um, that's not like any other. I, my heart breaks because of you because I have a passion to be with you. See, I think God wants us to see his passion. And then he leads us to see his plan. It's in Ezekiel chapter 37. Ezekiel says, The hand of the Lord was on me, and he brought me out by the Spirit of the Lord. He set me in the middle of a valley, and it was full of bones. He led me back and forth among them, and I I saw a great many bones on the floor of the valley, bones that were very, very dry. And, And he asked me, Son of man, can these bones live? You see, I think even Ezekiel didn't know how bad it was. He didn't know how much, how much death the sin of his people had, 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 had developed, how bad it had got, how many dead bones there were, or even how long they had been dead. They'd been dry bones because, because their, their faith had been dead for so long that destruction had happened just on and on, not just with the fall of Babylon, but all the years before that, leading up to that. The people didn't know how bad it was. And God shows Ezekiel. This is how bad the sin has become. This is how bad they've fallen away. This is how much death has has happened. And God asked Ezekiel the question we all want to know. Can these bones still live? God, I've fallen away a good bit. I've sinned so much. Is there any way that these bones can still live? God, the the oppression I feel in my life, the the things I'm going through because of other people's mistakes, is there any way that these bones can live? God, I'm hurting inside the world. It it seems to be going to hell, and, and I'm wondering, God, is there any way these bones can live? And Ezekiel says back to God, well, God, only you know. You see, I think most of us, we don't struggle with the idea that God has the power to change all of this. That God has the power to create spectacle and bring this world back together. But that's not God's plan. What God says to Ezekiel, verse 4, he says, To Ezekiel, prophesy to the bones. You say to them, dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. In other words, you can wait on me all you want, Ezekiel, but I'm telling you, it's time to stop crying and mourning and start speaking to the bones. You see, most of us, we're really good at describing the dry bones in our life. We can tell you how bad it is. We can tell you how much it's hurt. We can tell you how much damage was done. But sometimes, sometimes God wants us to stop talking about what we see and start speaking about what he said. Sometimes God wants us to stop talking about our situation and start speaking into our situation. Sometimes God says, I've given you the power to bring the solution to your situation. So I don't want you to speak anymore about what you see. I want you to speak about what I said. And I want you to speak about what I said until it begins to resemble what you see. Let me ask you, church. Are we going to let our problems 
Are we going to let our temptations, are we going to let our failures continue to define us? Or are we going to spend our time speaking the solution into the situation? Because God has given us a gift. He's given us the freedom to be a part of the solution. So maybe it's time to stop describing the problems and start declaring his promises. Maybe it's time to, to start declaring his promises so much that it begins to, to, that we can watch the power bring things together, that we declare his promises so much that, that we believe it, so much that our ears hear the word of the Lord, that we declare his promises so much that our minds align with what he said. Ezekiel says this in verse 7. He says, So I prophesied as I was commanded, and as I was prophesying, there was a noise. There was a rattling sound, and the bones came together, bone to bone. I looked, and tendons and flesh appeared on them, and skin covered them. But there was no breath in them. Things started coming together, but there was still a problem. There's still a problem. God says, My people look good now, but they're still out of breath. In Hebrew, the word breath is the same word for spirit. In Genesis, we see God formed the man, but he wasn't alive yet till God filled him with the breath, till God filled him with the spirit. If we were to fast forward in history to the ministry of Jesus and, and we reach the first chapter of Acts, there Jesus is proven he is the Son of God. He has already died on that cross and he's risen three days later. He's been walking around on the ground for, for 40 days and the disciples are in amazement of Jesus and they go, okay, Jesus, when are you going to do it? When are you going to fix all of this? When are you going to make the world right again? When are you going to bring all these pieces back together? And Jesus said, no, 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 no. No, I'm going away. I'm going away and I'm leaving behind my breath, my spirit, because you're going to do it. He says this in Acts 1 8. He says, But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. I want you to do this with me, church. On the count of three, on the count of three, I want you to breathe out. You ready? One, two, three. Let's breathe out. Stop. You can breathe in. See, I think some of us are sitting dead in our chairs this morning because somewhere along the line, we stopped breathing in. And you say, well, Tom, I I came to church this morning. That's good, that's good. I mean, and, and you wore the right clothes. You're looking good on the outside. But perhaps you lost the breath on the inside. You say, well, Tom, I've been coming every Sunday, and that's great, that's good, that's good. But you can't live if you only breathe in once a week. No, God says, I need you to breathe in, my people. I need you to breathe in my word every day. I need you to breathe in and be filled with my breath, be filled with my spirit. I need you to breathe in and and be filled with my grace so you can live out my love. Church, on the count of three, I want us to breathe in. You ready? One, two, three. Breathe in. Stop. You can breathe out. See, I think some of us are sitting dead in our chairs, not because we stopped breathing in, but because for some reason we stopped breathing out. It was uh, less than 24 hours that my daughter Avery was born, and there we are in the hospital room, and and, uh, it's 
uh, her, her mother and I and, and just our little girl, and she's making all sorts of fun noises and cries and screams, and, and uh, we're just enjoying being with her. And then um, something happened out of nowhere. I have no idea what caused it to this day. I, I don't know why it happened, but, but there was this moment, and, and we're, we're looking at her, and, and all of a sudden she breathed in there real deep, and she stopped. So we waited for it, and we were waiting for maybe a loud scream or a cry, or, and we kept waiting. And I watched as her lips began to turn blue, and, and as her complexion began to become paler and paler, and my heart began to cry out to God, Lord, Lord, let her breathe out. Lord, let, let her, if she's got a scream, let her scream. Let it be the loudest scream. It'll be the most beautiful scream. Lord, let it happen. As seconds went by, it felt like minutes, which felt like years, which felt like an eternity. As my heart cried out to God, let her breathe out. And, and eventually it happened. Eventually she let out this, this burst of a cry, and her lips became the right color, and her skin became the right color. And it was the most beautiful sound I had heard. And that's the most beautiful sound I'd heard because her life and every life in this room was meant to make a noise. We are the spectacle. We have been called to breathe out and declare the promises of God, to declare his power, to declare his pain that is rooted in his passion for us, to declare that we are the plan that God wants to use us. God has made it now so that we are the spectacle. I find it interesting Then when God tells Ezekiel to prophesy to the breath, in verse 9, he says this, Prophesy to the breath, prophesy, son of man. This is what the sovereign Lord says. Come breathe in from the four winds. And maybe your Bible says from the four ends. And the idea is the four corners of the earth that God calls in. The four corners from all over the earth. Breathe in the Spirit. And then in Acts 1.8, Jesus tells his disciples, says, you will receive power when you receive the breath, when it comes upon you. You will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in Judea, in Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. That God calls in his spirit from everywhere to fill us up only so that we can send it back out with his praises and promises. Breathe in, church, so that you can breathe out, church. Breathe in, church, to breathe out, church. Let's breathe in, church. Does he have your attention? Breathe out, church. Let's breathe in, church. Can you see his heart? Breathe out, church. Do you feel it changing yours? Breathe in, church so that we can breathe out, church. In these next few moments, we're just going to breathe. We're going to breathe in His Spirit. We're going to focus our attention on God and what He has done for us through His Son, Jesus. We're going to focus our attention upon a cross. We're going to take emblems. We're going to take the broken pieces of bread, which remind us of Jesus' broken body. We're going to drink the juice, which reminds us of his spilt blood. We're going to breathe in his spirit so we can breathe out. I want you to hold on to those emblems until you are ready to take them, until you are focused enough to receive him. And I want us to remember that the last thing he did on that cross, the last action he took, that he breathed out 
one last time so that all of us could breathe in, to breathe out.